0: SafetyFM.com with Jay Allen.
1: Changing safety cultures, one broadcast and one podcast at a time. Welcome to Safety FM, where we talk about safety that's truly inspired by you. Hello and welcome to Safety FM. This episode of the broadcast and the podcast has been brought to you by Safety Focus Moment. They're consultants that want to help you get to the safety culture that you've been looking for. For more information, go to safetyfocusmoment.com. Hello and welcome to Safety FM. This is Jay Allen. On today's episode, we have Andrea Baker, the Hop Mentor. Andrea Baker has an extensive background with Human and organizational performance. Enjoy our conversation with Andrea Baker here on Safety FM. We are changing safety cultures.
0: One broadcast and one podcast at a time. SafetyFM.com.
1: Hello, I have Andrea Baker on the line, also known as the Hop Mentor. How are you doing today?
0: I'm doing great, Jay. Thanks for having me.
1: Well, I appreciate you actually coming on. Um, I know that I've been going back and forth with um, Bob Edwards and Todd, and they told me that I needed to get you on. So I appreciate you actually ta- have taking the moment of actually coming on today. So I have to ask, how, did the, ju- how, did, the ju- how did the journey start?
0: Oh, for so for me, um, so I got the pleasure of hearing both Uh, Todd Conklin and Bob Edwards um, speak when I was working for you know a large corporation and um, when they came in and and started talking about you know whether we call it hop or new view or safety differently whatever terminology we want to use I think it was the first time that somebody had put words to um, some of the things that I was thinking and and trying to do Um, and it was the first time that I felt like I, I wasn't alone in my thought process um, and the first time actually I had any sort of language to, to make sure that I could describe that thought process to someone else. Um, so I, I became obsessed with the concept very, very quickly uh, and did my best within the job that I had at the time. So I was a, a safety leader in a manufacturing organization. Um, so I started to try to apply the concepts locally. Um, and then had the opportunity to do that sort of at a, a business level for the organization and then at a regional level. Um, so got to try a lot of things, figure out how to actually articulate the ideas myself, um, figure out how to spread the information to other people, um, and get to do that for, for a good chunk of time within, within an organization that had lots of different facets to it, and different leaders, and you know different countries, and. Um, and then just recently, uh, at the beginning of, of this year, decided I'd see if I could help other people outside the company. So stepped out to do it on my own. So that's how it started for me. It was uh, definitely a memorable day when they came in the first time. So.
1: so let me backtrack a little bit. So right before as you started going down this path, what was your definition of safety? How did you view safety compared to how other people saw it inside your, inside your organization?
0: So I think that my view was very much um, had become the company's view at the time. So I remember when I, when I first walked into um, to the company as an intern and people started to describe safety to me, I remember the feeling that, well, this doesn't seem to match up with my everyday life. I'm not sure that I understand this view of safety. Um, And so although I was defining it the same way, so the definition I think I would have told you at the time was that safety was the absence of accidents, Um, my thought process on how to get there felt different. Uh, So I I never felt comfortable um, trying to constrain people's behavior to a a very specific or or rigid procedure that didn't feel like it was matching um, real life it felt like that's not exactly how humans function so um, if humans are functioning as we do what else can we do to make sure that our actions don't have um, repercussions that we're we're not willing to to accept Um, so i think the definition at the time in my mind was the same i was still defining it as the absence of or absence of accidents but the manner to get there felt very different from what my colleagues or some of my colleagues right i'm sure there are other people thinking the same way but some of my colleagues were were doing
1: so when you get start getting involved with safety at the very beginning of your career, was it something that kind of fell on your lap or was that was something that you were interested in starting off?
0: Oh great question. Um, so I went to school for chemical engineering um, and I got through chemical engineering or into chemical engineering um, mainly because I wasn't exactly sure what I wanted to do um, and at the time uh, I was given some great advice that you know, if you're an engineer, you can probably get a job in a lot of different places. So so it seems like a, a good place to study. Um, on paper, when you read about environmental health and safety, it really does sort of sound like you're saving the world. right? So I wasn't really sure what that was, what it was to actually work in the field. Um, and I hadn't had any exposure in school, um, but I decided to give it a try um, and did an internship Um, And I think that the idea of being able to go to work where my main goal um, was to make sure that that the people that were going to be there and spending their time there, were going to do it in a way that they were not only hopefully comfortable, but obviously were going home in the same conditions that they came in. That that concept was something that was very helpful for me to sort of anchor my thought process to, um, because I wasn't really even sure I wanted to work for a big corporation right out of school. And so if I was, if I was going to do that, it was definitely going to be in an area where I felt as though I was people centric as opposed to, um, process centric. So that was my original thought process, I think coming out of school.
1: Okay. So then when you decide to go out on your own and become what we'll call a hop evangelist, (laughs) um, how does that actual process work? Did, Did it scare you at first on going out on your own and doing this?
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, so, I, you know, I, I went from a job that, uh, you know, I had, you know, a nice nice pay and, you know, had benefits and um, and then went into an area where I really didn't know what the future looked like. And, uh, you know, if I didn't have a very supportive uh, family and fiancé, now husband at the time, I'm, I probably wouldn't have done it. Um, so we just kind of looked at our life and said, hey, you know, if, if this doesn't work, Andrea, can we survive on one salary and what does that look like and um, so yeah it was it was very scary but at the same time I don't know that I if I didn't do it I think I would have regretted it um, because I I'm at a point where I'm not sure what I would do if I wasn't doing this this is um, these concepts are so ingrained in my current thought process and and important enough to me to pass to other people um, that the idea of not being able to have a forum in which I can do that full time uh, is, is, that's actually scarier now. So the idea of stopping is more scary um, than I think it was the idea of, of starting because I'm not sure what else I would do. It's sort of, um, it's become a little bit of a mission, uh, a life mission to impart these concepts, you know, whatever terminology we choose to, to label them as at the time, I think the concepts themselves are not only important in safety, but operations and also daily life. I've had more, People come to me after we've had a conversation about these, these concepts, and they said, you know, I thought this was a safety discussion, and then I realized it not only applies in safety, but quality and operations. But really, it changed how I interacted at home with my kids, or, you know, how I talked to my family, and, and how I view strangers on the street. Um, and I think that's the piece that keeps me hooked, um, and keeps it as something in the forefront of my mind of of what I would like to do with you know with my life and my time.
1: So when you start deciding that you're or you start thinking about the process of changing over, were you frustrated just being at one particular place in trying to implement human organizational performance? Or did you see it more along the lines of you have more to share with others?
0: Um, It was more along the the lines of the the second piece of, um, you know, thinking that. I'd moved in a direction with a, with a corporation and I, I knew what that looked like and I knew what it felt like to you know, be interacting with the same groups of people. And, and I also knew what it felt like to go from trying to implement some of the concepts at a, at a local level to a business level to, to a regional level. Um, and then speaking with you know folks that were outside the company, oftentimes they didn't have someone internal that had been able to kind of walk through that and i knew that the only reason i was able to do it was because of influences like uh todd and bob and so i I wanted to be able to be that influence for other people hence hence the name mentor as opposed (laughs) to anything else right um if i could get rid of this the the idea that i'm a consultant that would be great i I don't think that you can actually you know depart from that when somebody's hiring you for a short period of time but um the idea to be able to come in and just have conversation and help people I don't come I don't have any answers right I don't claim to have any answers I just have experience in in what seems to work well and what seems not to work well and can share that and help people come up with their own thought process and game plans um but yeah that's the the mentoring aspect to be able to to be that for other people like they were to me
1: well, you can always go into an organization and tell them that you're an insultant and not a consultant because most of the times they feel like you're insulting the process that they're doing. I've had somebody actually tell me that I before and I was like, can. oh, uh, yeah, I could. I could. I don't know how well that how far that's going to get you, but you could always use that know. line. <laughs> so. So when you you. (laughs) Uh, do it on the way out, no, I'm joking, I'm joking as I say that. So when you you start going into organizations and you're introducing human organizational performance, what are some of the biggest complexities that you actually run into as you're trying to establish it?
0: Um, So it really depends upon where each organization is with their their own journey. So it depends upon who I'm working with, um, whether or not I'm there to initially sort of have people understand the concepts or or, you know what we might describe as a paradigm shift in thought understanding you know what are the current shared beliefs or assumptions that the organization has and then sort of working to to adjust those to align um, let people see sort of the the difference in how we believe the world is working versus you know how it how it seems to be working when we understanding a little bit more about people so If I'm walking into a discussion where it really is the very first time that people have heard about the concept, um, usually the biggest hurdle um, is people being able to align the thought process with something large in their organization that is now currently dictating their behavior. And usually that's a disciplinary process. Um, So that seems to be the very first hurdle that people um, struggle with. We've spent so much time kind of in a command control Thought process um, that when people first hear the concepts, it feels as though all of those ideas are being thrown out the window, and it can be scary. Um, so, uh, I've spent a lot of time, a lot of a lot of failure, trial and fa- trial and error, and and m- much failure in between to try to figure out how do I message those things in a way where they aren't so scary that people can actually hear me. Um, Because as soon as you, you know, hit a nerve where um, it seems to conflict directly with how an organization is functioning, oftentimes people can't hear anything else you have to say. Um, So making sure that you have lots of time for discussion and uh, people to have an open environment where people can say, you know, I think the thing you just said is crazy. um, That's important for people to hear you. So that's sort of the first barrier. And then those barriers become, um, I'd say, smaller but more numerous as, as people start to embed this thought process in what they do, because suddenly all of the programs and processes, procedures, tools that an organization has, um, there's usually some sort of uh, sticking point that no longer aligns with this new view of thinking, right? So those anything that we've created within an organization, if I, if I can call it the traditional view uh, of safety, if it was created during that time, there's usually a place within that process or. How that tool is designed that no longer aligns when you start to think about things from from a new view, and um, so then a lot of that activity and, and barrier and struggle is how do we how do we align what we're physically doing and the the requirements that we have with now this new mental thought process, and how can we do that in a way where it's um, not jarring for everyone, um, because we don't want to you know rip the rug out from under people because that's that's usually not effective either. Um, so how can we do that in a way that is respectful of all the things that we've done in the past, um, but also allows us to keep moving in a maybe different direction than we had been before.
1: So when you go in and you tell them some of the concepts and I'm talking about, you're talking to some of the upper management, we'll use that as an example, and you tell them a concept that, as you say, kind of rips the rug out from underneath them, what is normally the interaction and how does that, actually, that conversation go, especially if it's not something they're seeing eye to eye with you at that particular moment? How much time, I know that you said you gave them time to kind of think over the process, but how much time are we talking here?
0: Um, so to get a really good sort of original introduction to the ideas, it, it maybe takes six, eight hours or so that can give you a, a pretty good um, original understanding of how the ideas differ from what we're currently doing. And when there's a point and there's there's always, you know, it depends upon the organization, but there's always several different points within the discussion that um, seem to conflict directly with what we've done in the past. And to work through that and help people understand, who, I guess, what the, the new reality would look like if they wanted to go in that direction. Um, I use a lot of examples and, and storytelling, which is something that, you know, Todd Conklin taught me very early. Um, by telling examples, people can see what the world would look like. Um, and so how I generally set up an example or a story is I, I kind of tell it from two different perspectives. And it's you know, it's not very obvious when I'm having the discussion, but the first time that I, I talk about it, I tell it from maybe a traditional view. So you don't know all of the information, you sort of gather the information the way we might. So let's say we're talking, for example, about um, a, a reaction from a response from an organization after we've had an injury. So I will tell that story from the perspective of how it used to look from my, you know, personal life when we were viewing things from a traditional view, and you know, people in the room who are in the same reality that I was, right, in that traditional view, they're nodding their head and they're like, yeah, "Yeah, that sounds completely normal," and that's exactly how we would respond. And, um, and then I tell the same story again from the new view, um, and the difference, the juxtaposition between those two, and then recognizing that even the corrective actions that we had put in place post-event, um. Using new view or using the traditional view, uh, they're they're so different from each other that people start to uh, to see the value. When they don't see the value yet, that's when I move to personal examples. So rather than using work examples, we'll take the same concept and talk about it in terms of things that they see in their everyday life um, to sort of foundationally try to have a understand how humans respond. Right, so. The idea that we are people, whether or not we are outside of work or in work, and we don't become less human once we step in the door and work, um, that sometimes helps people recognize where those concepts exist in their everyday life. So then when they leave the class, they start to see it all the time as opposed to just in, you know, the few examples that they might see after, for example, an event at work, they start to see it multiple times a day in their own life. And that helps sort of solidify the concept.
1: So when you go in and you start having the conversations and you try to tell them how it applies to real life, you know, opposed to you know just being the work side, and then you turn around and you tell them that the new view of safety is a philosophy and not a program, how does that conversation normally go? Uh, to
0: be perfectly honest, I'm not sure that people understand or even have a good frame of mind to understand that it's not a program until maybe after the entire discussion. So um, I currently tell people sort of upfront in the discussion to try to create a a new paradigm or at least a a new schema in somebody's mind of, you know, this isn't the traditional, um, you know, we train these, these groups of people and then we write these you know, procedures and we roll out these tools and um, that it doesn't quite work that way. Um, I don't think that it clicks with people um, until we discuss it again at the end, after all of the discussions and then that people see um, that it is, these concepts are embedded in everything. Um, I also use some, some visuals from um, The Matrix to help understand that it's sort of, there's a lot of truth behind the truth um and and that that sometimes helps people see that this isn't just uh, how we view this through safety it's kind of how we view the world um but yeah i don't know that it sticks originally i don't think it does i really don't because it didn't for me um i personally tried to roll it out as a program first uh, because i didn't have any other map i no one had ever told me that i was trying to make a culture change it actually wasn't until i I um, started doing some research on culture change that I even understood that there could be a map somewhere on culture change and um, UNICEF taught me a lot about that. Uh, They have some public uh, documents that are available on the web that you can just read through and they they talk about how they plan out a, a social norm change within a country. Uh, and that started to give me a little bit of hope that you could do it within an organization. So if, if a group of people can go into an entire country where they don't control the means of communication and they have to, you know, sort of beg, borrow and steal even to get a message out to people and they are successful in changing uh, the understanding of the world for an entire country, then, you know, I think we can do it within an organization where we have a captive audience. Um, And we also, you know, have not an entire uh, spectrum worth of individuals working there, right? We just have the individuals that we've hired. So we've already got a natural filtering process of the people that are working there. Um, So, yeah, so I, until you give people a new model, um, I think it is very hard to picture what a culture change looks like.
1: And not to make light of what you were saying about UNICEF, but I had to tell you the moment you mentioned the matrix and you use some of those examples. I'm thinking, are you passing out blue and red pills and going, we're about to unjack the back of your head? But that's a whole <laughs> other story. Yeah.
0: But, well, honestly, it is. I, so I don't actually pass them out, but I do. Um, I do sorry, it's my dog. No, um, but I do tell them when I'm about to say something pretty uncomfortable, I say, you know, this is this for me, this is the first time this is like somebody force feeding me a red pill. So, you know, if this doesn't meet with your version of reality right now, that's okay. Let's talk about how it differs Um, so that people have a little, they can brace themselves a little bit for the fact that it's okay if this doesn't sound like what you're used to.
1: So when you start having the conversation, you tell them, we're not going to say that it's someone's fault if x occurs what is normally the reaction that you get into the that you get from the people inside of the room
0: so i actually um i don't think i ever say those words out loud okay. um, what i do instead is i mean it, but it's, you're right that that's what the point that i'm trying to to make and for sure you know it's written on slides to things like uh, blame fix is nothing um but i i found that telling people that we're not going to blame them isn't nearly as powerful as showing them how inefficient that blame was. So that's where that storytelling comes back into to play. So if I walk through um, an example, and and I don't explicitly say that we're blaming the person, I just, um, you know, respond with the types of questions that we would ask if we had sort of a blame mentality in the back of our head. And then where that leads us to, right? So So what sort of information do we gain and what are the things that we've actually been able to improve in our in our system based on that and then when you you show them that without having blame in the back of your mind recognizing that you know in most cases you can take any individual that was doing that work and, and all of us if we were given the same information and tools put in that position would make a, a similar decision. That um, there's a high probability that that event would happen independent of whether it was that specific person or if it was somebody with the same, same training, same background, same, you know, same environment. Um, when you rephrase it that way and you show how asking different questions gets you to very different information once you've removed that, that feeling of blame well, the individual should have known better once we remove that then you can actually objectively see the difference in outcome. Even if the soft skills part of it is still a bit elusive at the time, you can objectively see that it is a very, very different solution set and that one changes the probability of the event and the other one didn't. That is at that point, that's when I start to talk about blame, when they've actually seen an example of um, of what it looks like in in real life, because these are real stories that I'm, I'm telling, so, you know, the stories that I've lived through. Um, and they can see that that bias that I personally had, because I'm telling them from my perspective of how I used to ask questions, um, affected my solution set. Um, And I think then that's where that blame discussion comes in. And usually by that point, the idea of blame fixing nothing doesn't seem so foreign anymore. Had I said it right up front, I think um, I get a lot of pushback because people wouldn't even exactly know what I was trying to say and all of the biases that we have would come right to the forefront. But sort of peeling it back a little bit and showing what that looks like, I think uh, helps people recognize that, yeah, you know, that is that is true. It doesn't help us. And then if you tack on a few real life examples of personal life things um, right at the end of it, it sort of solidifies that idea.
1: Well, I I have to tell you, when you start having the conversation with people and you bring up that not all accidents are preventable i always like to see that first look that they make of what is this person saying and once they once you start having the conversation they start figuring out depending on who you're talking to inside of that room that some of their bonus structures is tied into accident rates and all of a sudden we're kind of saying we want to not really focus on accident rates i always enjoy how the pushback comes automatically when there's a financial Issue that would might occur to them personally. Have you experienced anything like that?
0: Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, what I have tried to do with how I present the information is to um, actually limit that amount of pushback by giving people the space to um, to think, to question, um, and and it's actually a little bit. You know to be perfectly honest i love the pushback right because I, I love to be able to to talk to it and argue it and all of those things um but i i was thinking back to the to the very first time that i had heard the message and um oftentimes where i felt i might be you know sort of waking a person up and shaking shaking them up by uh creating an environment where i have Really, sort of pulled the rug out from under them and, and told them something like out, outright. You know, do you guys know that not all accidents are preventable? Um, that people would stop hearing me uh, because suddenly they, I had just offended something that was really near and dear to their heart, um, and so now my message is not as worthwhile as it was before to them. Um, so definitely push back, um, but. Normally, when we get into a place like that, I, I actually help them tell me why they're pushing back as opposed to arguing towards them. So absolutely financial incentive that comes up a lot, um, almost as often as a disciplinary process comes up. Um, but oftentimes the conversation we have is, well, is it the concept that you're struggling with? Like, does the con- do these words that we put together here not make sense and you don't believe them? Is that what is upsetting? Or is it because it seems so hard to do this based in our current structure, right? Is it hard for us to believe that this is true because we have something like a financial incentive tied to the number of accidents? And when people can make that decision for themselves, um, suddenly they feel a little bit more empowered to change things because they recognize, no, we truly believe this is true. It's true in our everyday life. We've sort of been brainwashed within an organization to believe it's not true and all of our incentives are tied around it. But now that we have a little bit of permission, at least in this room, in this space, to think a little bit differently, then we can recognize that, you know, we did design this, so maybe we can change it, right? So we, we're the we're the people that put it in place, so we could probably change it as well if we wanted to.
1: Andrew, I have to tell you, even by you dis- describing that, I was sitting there feeling how uncomfortable that comes across by having that conversation. And I mean that in a good way, but it's just... The way that you approach it, it's like, uh, I would almost kind of felt like I feel like I was melting in my chair if you approached me that way um, with that particular comment, which which is a good thing. Don't get don't get me wrong. So what was the most well, difficult hopefully, concept? Hopefully it's <laughs> go, go right ahead. Sorry about that.
0: I was just saying hopefully it's effective. Right. So change. I try to change the approach a lot to, to make it as um, as effective as possible and as as. Um, least uncomfortable only uncomfortable when it needs to be right so
1: so do you run into a lot of issues where people approach you and go how long is this going to take to implement and what's going to be my return on investment if we do implement this process procedure program philosophy
0: yes um that is usually the first phone call when somebody is asking for some help that's what that first phone call sounds like um and um My goal during that call is to have the conversation with the individual that, you know, now, whether they chose to or not, has become the advocate for this concept, right? So they're the person that in some way, shape or form was asked to give somebody else a call to bring this idea in. So they're the first face of this concept for their organization, or at least they're the face for the, you know, the group of people they're influencing at the time. so anytime that somebody's calling and asking for assistance, and that's the direction they're coming from, for me it's a it's a sort of a red flag that they're not sure what they're asking for. Um, because if they had already been indoctrinated into this sort of thought process, um, then they that wouldn't be the first thought on their mind, right? They would be looking for ways to help encourage their management to take this to the n- next level. Um, but the conversation would sound a little bit different. So. Um, so I try to spend time with that person to make sure that they know what, what this is about and that they're on the same page so that they can actually be an advocate for it. And then if, if it's not what they're looking for, I certainly send them to other, other folks that have some great programs that they can implement. But right up front, that's one of the first conversations that I'll have is that, hey, it's actually, it's not a, it's not a program um so return on investment we can look into lots and lots of different organizations um, and you can see the ones that do this well and you can see the ones that don't do this quite well and and you can see a huge difference in um, how they operate so oftentimes we'll use the the difference between um like the commercial aviation industry um and the reliability that they've created in their organization specifically around transporting people from place to place um, versus the medical industry, um, and the fact that the culture behind the ability to to even have discussion after something you know doesn't go to plan, or you know it, we weren't able to follow written instruction, or we made an error, that there's a very different culture between those two. Um, the commercial aviation industry, for for a while, has had what they call the ASAP process, which I'm you know I'm sure many of your listeners have heard of or you've already talked about, but that ability to. Be able to bring forward um, when people weren't able to follow procedure, or made an error, and that's sort of ingrained into the culture that that they have created over time, versus in the medical industry um, where currently it's very difficult for a doctor or a nurse to have a place that they can go talk about the fact that they you know made an error, you know, almost resulted in a in a patient fatality, um, you know, due to the lawsuit structure and all of those very complex things. But when you look at the difference between the two and you you know fundamentally understand the the outcome right how how safe it is to fly um statistically right it is safer to fly um you have a higher chance of getting struck by lightning than you do dying in an aircraft um whereas there's a lot of metrics around um when it comes to error of of doctors and nurses and, and medical staff and and how prevalent that is and um you know sort of the risk that we currently have when we walk into uh, a place for a medical procedure so when you can compare those sorts of industries um people kind of conceptually understand the return on investment, and it makes that discussion easier with you know whoever they're bringing in to have uh, the discussion of is it is it going to make sense to have somebody come in and talk about human and organizational performance so
1: so has there been a so, is it has there been a time where you started consulting with a company and you felt that it was not going the way that you wanted, or you did not feel that um, the concepts that you were bringing up front were not a good fit?
0: Um, and, and I mean
1: no. and, and I mean and I so mean that I, from and I mean that from the structure of how the organization was laid out. Not yeah. that there, not that human organizational performers was not a good concept. It was just not a good fit for that particular organization.
0: So I think the only, so recently, no. Um, and I think that the only reason that that's a no is um, because it has happened in the past. Um, and the, the conversation that I have up front when somebody calls is designed to help make sure that I, I don't come in and you know sort of waste their time um, in when they're not ready for it. I'd say that in the past when people have not been ready for it, it's really um, when there is no safety foundation yet at all right so that even general compliance with the law is not being followed um when when safety has been put on the back burner for so long that people aren't even aware of what the regulatory requirements are um that's a time where it, it seems like i'm it seems like the sink or the the uh the ship is sinking and i'm coming in to talk about uh designing a better lifeboat right it just it doesn't feel like the right time right it's just it's, hey we, we got we have to get out of the ship right now and and we're going to make do with whatever lifeboat we have and um and my discussion is probably not in the right place so um hasn't happened just because of that discussion but it, it had happened in in um you know some other colleagues that i've had conversations with so okay.
1: so if we go back to the beginning of this journey for you what was the most difficult concept of a human organizational performance that it, that it took you a while to adjust to or you had a difficulty accepting?
0: Um, I think the hardest part for me was that there were always a critical few things in my mind that um, I had been taught we just had to do um, when it comes, so so whether we, we talk about it being um, a life-saving rule um, and I didn't understand how when you have such a critical rule, why if somebody didn't follow it, discipline wasn't the right answer. That was my biggest sticking point. I understood it for some of the smaller things, but for, for big compliance requirements, It was very difficult for me originally to understand. Well, how does that now look? What does that look like? Um, And it took me going through events in which something that I thought was a a cardinal rule was broken, um, and seeing how my belief on what to fix historically was not going to be helpful. Right. So the one event that sticks out, and there's many of them, but the one event that sticks out in my mind was. um, we had a, an employee in one organization that um, was wearing gloves around a drill press and um, his fingers got pulled in and he, he lost two fingers. Um, and I remember thinking, so I was part of an immediate response to that. And I um, remember thinking, well, that's the, the cardinal rule. You know, I, I have a lot of empathy that this person has suffered such a life-altering event. Um, but even if you looked at the, the piece of equipment that the person was using, there was a sign on that piece of equipment that said, do not wear gloves around rotating equipment. Um, and I knew enough about this concept at the time, so this was really early on in my journey, that um, that I, I knew that my sort of those voices in the back of my mind screaming this, you know, why didn't you just follow the rule? I knew they weren't helpful, but I wasn't exactly sure what to do about it. Um, and so I sort of shut myself in you know, my, my office and said, okay, well, how, how would you think about this from, from a hot perspective? Um, and so this idea of, you know, safety is not the absence of errors, it's the presence of defenses. In this case, I couldn't understand how a defense could exist. And that was the piece where I kept getting stuck. And I think that's why it was so hard for me to understand this. these critical rules. They often exist because there isn't a defense that exists yet. The, the rule is the only thing keeping you safe. I didn't understand at the time that that's a sign of a brittle system. Right. That's a sign that we need to spend a lot more time and attention on that system because if we just have this one rule, always remember, never forget, and that's the only thing that is keeping us safe, well, then we're obviously going to suffer events in that in that area, in that space. Um, so in this particular event, I brought together some, some people that worked around rotating equipment from various different industries um, and found out that one of the organizations had already thought through this and they had created... Um, heart-resistant gloves that had tear-away fingers. Um, and that was the first time the light bulb went off, that, well, these actually had never existed before, so no wonder I was stuck um, in the thought process. Um, and that I was holding on to these rules as the only thing that was gonna save people. And, and really, that should be a sign instead that we need to spend a lot more time thinking outside the box on what we could do differently. How do we allow people to fail safely? Because we're never gonna be able to follow a rule with 100% compliance 100% of the time.
1: Well, it's interesting that you mentioned that because that's also some of the standpoints that people will take and turn around and say, well, this is why you can have behavior-based safety and human organizational performance inside of the same location where you can do like hop light or behavior-based safety light. And I always have such a difficult time when I start hearing that because it's exactly as you said, it's people not thinking outside of the box on how you could actually come up with some of these concepts. Have you dealt with a lot of um, locations where they'll turn around and say, can there be a combination of both?
0: Um, yeah, because a lot of locations, you know, took up behavioral based safety and, um, uh, and that's fine, right? So so you never want to throw the good pieces of something out with uh, as we're trying to do do something new. So the the original um, task that I had in my own mind is how do we make these two things play nicely together, right? Because there's, there's clearly something that that whether perception or reality, people believe is working well with BBS. And, you know, there's clearly a way that we can align all of the things that we're doing with a new thought process. They, they don't have to be fundamentally incompatible. Um, so, I mean, the elements of BBS that make a ton of sense to me is that, um, you know, events, whether we're talking about safety or quality or you know operational offsets, they're, they're products of normal work. Right, so if you look at, at normal work and you understand you have the operational intelligence and the detail that the people who are closest to the work are doing, when you understand that information, then you're much better informed as an organization on how to improve things. I mean, that's the whole idea behind, you know, the ASAP process as well. What the pilots are facing in commercial aviation, that information is vital to inform design changes for, for airplanes. So we would want to have that same, that same level of um, operational intelligence with our organization. So gathering that information from normal work is not by any means in my mind a negative thing to do. It's a, it's a positive thing to do. Um, where we want to think about how how we do it is um, maybe where the difference is. So you know, if you have the human nature aspect of being observed is oftentimes when you're observed, right? And you know you're being observed, you change your, you modify your behavior. Um, so that, that makes things difficult to actually get the real nitty gritty of what's going on. Um, and then if we have to do that with you know, sometimes we do peer to peer, but sometimes we do an authority figure. Now you've added a whole nother level of difficulty of that interaction that makes it very difficult to to do well. So we've set our leaders up to actually be in a tough position to do observations um, and to do that well. And then also the chance that you're going to see the the variables by doing an observation, by chance um, that you would need to know in order to make better decisions it's also it's a smaller probability um where the other option of learning about <laughs> work is you, you sort of take that same mentality except you go out and you have a conversation right which is i think a lot of people have adapted that and a lot of really smart people who, who kind of created the idea of DBS, i think that was their original thought process but you go out and you have a, a really good conversation about what's difficult instead of speaking for operator compliance we start to seek for operator struggle Um, What is hard about this? Tell me about it, right? Even if you're not doing it right now, you know, what's the most difficult part of what you have to do? If I was brand new to this and you were teaching me, what would you tell me to watch? What would you say I should watch out for? Um, Those types of conversations, um, gathering operational intelligence through open dialogue where there isn't an authority figure saying this is how you should be doing it and you're not. Um, brings a lot of vital information and, and I think in that way those are very compatible concepts right you're still learning from normal work it's just a slight adjustment maybe in how we're gathering information about normal work
1: now Andrea if people want to know more about you what it, where can they contact you and do you have a website that you can provide to them
0: yeah I do um, so the website is www.thehopmentor.com um, and it's got all of my contact information a little bit about me and um, some resources So some links to resources of very smart people um, that are not me so another place that people can get some information
1: oh don't cut yourself short you have a great article that I believe actually pops up on the safety differently website that I thought it was awesome just the approach that you took in regards of a CEO questioning you and I thought it was a really good article
0: Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, that was fun to write, so I'm glad people are enjoying it.
1: Well, Andrea, I appreciate you coming on to Safety FM.
0: Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Jay. I appreciate it. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the host and its guest and do not
1: necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the company. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are only examples. They should not be utilized in the real world
0: as the only solution available, as they are based only on very limited and dated open source information. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the company. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored in a retrieval system, or transmitted in any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic, recording, or otherwise, without prior written permission of the creator of the podcast,
1: Allen. We are changing safety cultures.
0: One broadcast and one podcast at a time.
1: SafetyFM.com.